Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange. This is our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. Andy Payton is the guest on this week's exchange and he's one of those people whose jobs is both enviable and dizzying. Essentially, he's a director at a hospitality and events company called the Colombo Group, but his day-to-day includes overseeing the programming and promotions for five London venues, namely XOYO, The Nest, Phonox, The Jazz Cafe, and the recently acquired Camden Barfly. The Columbo Group and Peyton have become a significant force in the always tumultuous London club scene, so there was loads to talk about when he stopped by our London offices a few weeks back. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges on residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Andy Payton is up next. It's probably best if we start by having you explain the exact nature of your roles these days, because there are obviously many different moving parts to what you do. So I'm the one of the directors at the Columbo Group, and my role is I run the promotions team and oversee the nightclubs, which is Phonox, XOY, The Nest, and then the new venues, which are more live, which is the Jazz Cafe and the Camden Barfly, which we've we're going to close and change the name and then I book the DJs and oversee the team and do the programming for those venues and similarly I'm the programmer along with Noah Ball for Sunfall Festival. There may be people listening who don't know exactly what the Colombo Group is or does, could you um, explain for us? Uh, yeah, so it's it's a company that was set up by a guy called Steve Ball, I knew his one shake, about 10 years ago uh, they started, they bought a pub and I bought a few a few pubs and then that led to expansion and the first kind of foray into nightclubs was The Nest, um, which was I think five or six years ago now and that's when I started to become involved. It's kind of curious to say the least that you're, well, not only involved in this many nightclubs, but involved in this many nightclubs in London. So I'm kind of interested to learn how exactly you've gotten to this place in what feels like quite a short space of time. So what's the first step for you on this path? I guess moving to London, I moved to London to go to university, which was like 16 years ago. And I was working in a bar, I was working in the elbow room in Angel, which was fun. And my degree was quite boring, I wasn't enjoying it. So I was, I was, I became the manager there while I was doing my degree. What were you studying? I was studying banking and finance. Mm. I studied economics at A-level and history at A-level and found it really interesting, but finance, it was, it was very mathsy and everybody in the course wanted to work in the city and I really, really didn't. And so I, I spent more and more time at the, at the bar come club and became the manager while I was, while I was there. 
And then it kind of it kind of led to me staying on after I graduated, which what seemed like a really exciting job then also seemed a little boring because it was all I was doing. And so I asked kind of for no other reason than boredom if I could start putting on some events on the Sundays. And these were live music events that were utterly shambolic. I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> we would, we'd have like a beatboxer and then a, a singer-songwriter and I didn't understand that the artists needed monitoring or we necessarily needed a sound man. But it was it was kind of promoter school, six months of, of that, and it was the most enjoyable part of my job. And I just reached the point where I wanted to leave and become a promoter. I really wanted to work for myself. I, I kind of didn't like my boss and had, I guess, a problem with authority or with working for someone. And so, yeah, I, I just thought, this is something I can do off my own steam. I, I can sit at home, sit in a cafe and do this and, and it'll work or not work depending on how I do. So what does that first event that you throw look like? So I was doing some events while I was working there, uh, some like at the venue, and then I got into a scene. It was, it was very much a kind of indie. I got into the scene of booking these bands and it was kind of around the time of the Libertines and it was quite a close-knit scene in London. And so I, at my first event, I think it was at the Rhythm Factory in Whitechapel, and I'd done a couple of events while I was, while I was working on, uh, as the manager. I'd have made like a couple of thousand pounds per show and I, th- I really thought, you know, this is, this is a lot easier than, <laughs> than working in the, in the bar. And then I lost about, I think, a couple of thousand pounds on the first show. I put on like five bands and it was, it was a disaster. And so I think two weeks after quitting my job, I went and got a job working in a bar, just like as a barman from having managed, I don't know, 30 staff. <laughs> so then I just started again and then I was just, I was just like, okay, I need to be able to pay my rent. So I'll just work four or five nights a week. I was working at Cargo in Shoreditch, which at the time was, a, it was quite a, cool quite a credible music venue and I got to see a lot of good stuff a lot of a lot of good artists and then I was just putting on events and trying to learn as fast as I could I guess people would be interested to know especially considering that you do run so many venues with like such a disparate range of music being programmed like what's your kind of personal dance music history sort of like what gets you involved in the scene like what was really exciting you back in the day well, what happened, it, it was quite a, as I say, it was a, quite a community of, of indie bands and they, they very much centred around a lot of people who liked the Strokes and then kind of followed the Libertines and loads and loads of bands starting with the word the. And, uh, so we're sort of talking about the early 2000s yeah, sort of like yeah, garage. Very, yeah, exactly. Right. And, and, you know, everyone in Trilby's, me included. <laughs> and it was, it was all that. And then there just came a time where that whole scene just very, very quickly became very, very eclectic. And, you know, people people now call that new rave. And at the time it was that that was a thing, but it was it was a bit broader than that. So there was there was some da- some acts that the enemy called New Rave and it, the Claxons came out and test icicles and what have you. But then there was a lot of eclecticism around that. So so Uffy came along and the Ed Bang a lot came along. You had a lot of indie kids starting to like that and even Hot Chip and there was these great big indie discos that, that started to play faster music and started to play more, more beats. And then I was doing a night at the 333 Mother Bar at the same time. I was, I was doing a night there with three floors and, and very different music on each floor. And it'd be like, 
be some MCs. I think I had Professor Green on one with DJ Meddy, and then in the other floor it'd be like Jamie T or Jack Pignate or whatever, and it was, it was all over the shop. And at the same time, there's another night run by Blaze Belleville, and who does Boiler Room, and, and Caius called Troubled Minds, and theirs was similar, and they were, they were killing it. They were putting a 1,000 people in and having a 1,000 outside. Same venue, trying to get in, and they'd have JME on one floor and then some indie kids in, in tight jeans on another. And that really, that period was everybody just trying loads of stuff and liking loads of genres. I got to know Caius. Um, he was an A&R guy at XL at the time with, with the Young Turks label. And I was managing a guy who he signed. So we got to know each other and decided to do a weekly night at the Scala on Saturdays called Chalk. And that, it only lasted six months, but it was very much the embodiment of that that time with the sure from like French rappers to, to like I think Diplo played, MIA played, Ronson, but then loads of bands, Kate Nash and <laughs> you know. Has that carried forward for you? Are you still kind of excited by the intersection, if you like, between guitar music and dance music and dance music and hip hop? I think I really was up until getting the clubs more than anything because I think I think the the dance music that I started to put on was really really informed by that. So it'd be stuff that came from new disco, like the you know the aeroplanes and and you know Teed yeah. or whatever. But then also like Ed Banger stuff, French, and it, and it always seemed to extend from my indie roots. But then you know when you're a promoter, you're putting on a night and you, you you're running around and you're stressing about the front door and and the you know looking after the acts and stuff. But since I started having a club or being in that, that would mean me being in XOI or the Nest all night every Friday and Saturday. Sure, it. I get. I guess my taste kind of broadened from there, and were far more deeper into into dance music. I'd read that you did some nights at Turnmills for for a time. I feel like Turnmills is always a bit of a footnote or something in in London in the sort of you know London dance music history, if you like. Because I guess they programmed a quite a broad range of music, which included things like trance and hard house. So maybe it wasn't like as trendy, yeah. but like in my mind, it's it's a really key venue. You know, in yeah. that story, I wonder if you could maybe talk to us about like what you were doing there and sort of like what the club was like. To be honest, that. It's almost like every step of my career is, is based on a a, cha- a lucky chance happening. But I, I was never I was never programming the club itself. But what happened was when I first started doing bands, somebody took out a, a advert in the NME in the classified saying promoters wanted turnmills. I hadn't even heard of turnmills at the time, and it was for like midweek events. So I went down there and met a guy who was who was working on the midweek stuff, and um, I started to. I started to just put on some midweek nights, no, only in only one room. It was very much, it was not a significant part of the history of, of the club that is Turnmills, but kind of by good fortune, I met Danny Newman, who who's the owner, who now runs Lock and Load Events, which is one of the one of the biggest promoters, and um, that also kind of led me into dance music, because at the time he he was going to start a festival called Get Loaded, it was a Happy Mondays thing basically at, at Clapham Common. And I was helping with the indie stuff. I, I started off. I was a runner. I was actually my first day. I was was looking after bears for the day for twelve hours. That was that was my job. I was volunteering. How was that? What did what did he have for lunch? 
he asked to borrow money from me. <laughs> I, I was like 20 and I was, I was working for free and he, he was trying to borrow money. He was very interesting guy, as you can imagine. <laughs> uh, he, he performed as a singer in his own band in one of the small tents before the Happy Mondays performed. Right, I see. Which was as good as you'd imagine. Um, but yeah, that, that led me to that led me to kind of working on a consultancy basis with like for Danny, kind of helping Danny with the band stuff. But that meant I was spending every day in the office. Those guys were working on Southwest Four as well. All right. And obviously their their knowledge and their, their skill was in dance music. So I was just soaking it in and spending all day being like, "Who's this guy? Who's this guy on the flyer? What's this guy about?" And and eventually Southwest Four so much it, it just made perfect sense to not do an indie day on the same day as Reading and Leeds festival and to make Southwest for two days and so I kind of went on for a few years after that like independently but helping helping Danny I see okay so were you kind of predominantly involved in the booking process for the festival or yeah you? yeah and I, I don't want to overstate my my importance in it Danny was the the booker and I was I was kind of just a sounding board and uh tried to tried to give what knowledge I had and tried to help. And to be honest, more than anything, it was a learning process for me over everything else. I was very, very lucky to to meet him. Yeah, sure. So it would be kind of fair to say you cut your teeth in a dance music sense in in that particular environment. To a degree, but it, it was there was me seeing these great big DJs who who I don't even book now. You know, the the big kind of trancey stuff and the the Pete Tongs. But then at the same time, I was doing my own nights with with these. You know smaller oftentimes french disco acts in east london yeah i'd also read that um I, i'm not sure if it was around this time but you were doing kind of consultancy work for for brands also is that correct uh yeah yeah it was it was kind of i kind of fell into it somebody at cargo knew me because i was doing some events there some bands and somebody asked me to book some djs for ray-ban at wireless festival and it was you know i did that for a couple of years where it was just a thing on the side mm then I, I kind of got quite lucky and got given the opportunity to book. It was like five festival stages for Bacardi. And I I just, it was it was a really big thing for me because I was very broke and it was it was a really good, you know, way to pay the bills. But it was also, it was a lot of experience of putting on artists at events like that. And we had like Bicep very, very early on and Dan Avery really early on. And I got to know a lot of people who went on to be much bigger DJs. I mean, how was that? experience for you i mean without being kind of too mean-spirited i'd imagine that it can be quite difficult to be liaising with sort of uh non-music people yeah if, if you was, like it was funny it was it was kind of absurd at times you know it was uh somebody come on the radio and say please could you tell the dj to play some more mainstream music so i'd be like yep sure and run up and go up to like optimo or someone really serious who knew what they were doing be like do you want a drink? They'd be like, yeah. And then I'd give the thumbs up and, you know, <laughs> kind of just managing expectations, I guess. Yeah. It's like, yeah, they'll get right on it. Yeah. I, th I think probably all the DJs that I booked would have walked off if it hadn't been me pretending to ask them things that you probably don't want to be asking proper DJs. Do you feel like at this point there are examples of there being like a nice synergy between music and brands? Like, does that, you know, do those things happily coexist? Yeah. The, the people I knew when I was doing that who, who really knew what they were doing, the agency that I worked for were really good. And they would always talk about corporate culture. And, and if, if the staff who work for a brand are what that brand is, 
then their musical taste will probably reflect the brand. Sure. Obviously, I mean, Red Bull's the most obvious example, but, you know, they do a great job of, of just doing cool stuff and everyone's happy. They don't ask Francois K to hold up a can of Red Bull and smile at camera. You know, it's, it's much more natural than that. So before we go on and kind of talk about your various nightclub endeavours, I was sort of keen to try to understand what it has been. Um, you know, I don't know if there's something in your past or, you know, something more recently, but what it's been that's really driven you to this job and to this lifestyle. Have you ever like thought on why it is that this, you know, thing appeals to you so much? I definitely think it was not wanting to work for anyone. When I was at the Elbow Room, I didn't get on with my boss and I had... I just I really like the idea of when you're a promoter, if you fail and you lose some money, then it's on you and you, you fix it yourself and no, nobody's telling you, you, you're doing it yourself. And I think that's always been been the reason for it. And I think the position I'm in now is partially that and partially a, a load of chance meetings. You know, I met, I met Steve Ball um, and Riz when I was at the Elbow Room because Riz was doing a student night there at the time. And Steve was running Fabric at the time. He was running Fabric for the first, I think, eight or ten years. And meeting him and meeting Danny were purely by chance, but obviously had a really big influence and really helped. Mm. So it's the it's the nest, isn't it, that comes first in this in this timeline yeah. of yours? And um, you were involved from right at the beginning or near no. to the beginning? No. What happened was they started it and it was running for about a year. I was just a promoter. I was doing one night a month, but it was my night was was doing very well. It was okay. selling out. You know, the other nights maybe weren't. It, it didn't get off to a flyer as a venue, I think it's fair to say. And Steve, you know, he, Steve has always had a lot of faith in me and was kind of asking me for a very long time, you know, will you come and be the promotions manager? And I was always kind of like, I don't I don't want to, I don't want to work for someone, you know, it's flattered, but it's just not what I wanted to do. Sure. And I was happy ha doing loads of different things, having kind of fingers in pies. And then he, quite cleverly, he, he just took me for dinner and I DJ'd for him at the Queen's Head a couple of weeks before and got really drunk and acted like a bit of an idiot. And and I thought he was taking me for dinner to, to you know, chastise me. <laughs> and he said, look, I, I want you to take, I'm going to give you a share of the nest. You're going to be a shareholder. You don't have to work for us. Just, you know, use our office for your own stuff and give some advice. And, and it was an amazing, amazingly generous offer. And both Riz and Steve put a lot of faith in me. I'm very, very grateful for. And it started from there. And kind of what happened was once I had that kind of badge, once I had that, like, oh, I'm one of the owners, I became really, really obsessed with it and really proud of it. And, you know, I spent a lot of time in the venue and I've always been really obsessed with lights. I've always been very, very into, like, the effect that lighting has on the crowd and, and how that affects how, how the venue feels. And so I started spending a lot of time in there and... and being a bit of a perfectionist on stuff but at the same time I was still doing my own nights and I was doing a monthly night at XOYO under its old form and that kind of the contrast was was really clear to me and so that's when I kind of said to Steve and Riz we should buy XOYO if we buy XOYO we'll do we'll do a really good job I think just before we go on to talk about XOY, I wanted to speak a little bit about the um, location of the nest because, um, yeah. you know, you could almost consider the the stretch that it's on the kind of Kingsham Road into Stoke Newington Road to be like the main artery for, yeah. for like nightlife and young people in, in East London. Have you kind of 
dealt with that location? Because I'd imagine from the outside looking in, it would be something of like, you know, a blessing and a curse at the same time because it it does yeah. have quite so many people going down there. Yeah, and and we've over the over the years we've had it both ways where we've kind of been like, you know, the venue genuinely doesn't fill itself if we if we hadn't sold a certain number of tickets before Friday or Saturday we'll be really quiet and like the venue won't, we'll lose money. Surprisingly low number of people just walking Absolutely. up. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. The, the, the walk up isn't, isn't what you'd expect. And at the same time, obviously it being such a rowdy street and th- there is an element of, you don't just want people out to get drunk. You, you want people who care about the music. And we really want to sell 200 tickets before every, every Friday and every Saturday, because if you bought a ticket at home, you know that it's Harry and Dominic playing or whoever. Yeah, sure. There was a period when it was the busiest area and then Effie's licence got stripped really, really tight and it went down to, I think, midnight. And that immediately took 500 people from there, kind of further down the street towards where Alibi and Dance Tunnel are and completely killed the walk-up for a period. And I think it was a really good thing for us, to be honest. Yeah, because it just the the filtration almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah and it just made us it made us have to work for it. And that's a good thing. So with XOYO, I'd seen you in the past describe it as like, you know, kind of a middle of the road space almost, you know, back in the early days. I mean, what were you seeing in the club in terms of its like potential? You know, what what needs to change there? Like, what did what did you see in, in the venue? I always saw it from day one. I saw, I saw a load of steps um, that needed to be done. You know, so the, the very first step is that we, a lot of agents would be really reluctant to put artists in there, A, because their experience wasn't great because of the, the lights and sound and stuff weren't necessarily up to scratch, and B, because it was very hit and miss as to whether or not the venue would be busy. And obviously an agent doesn't want to put their artist in somewhere who's going to come back and say, oh, there was only 50 people there all night, it was really bad. I always said, it's not a nightclub unless we, we program it ourselves, Fridays and Saturdays. You know, if, it's not, if we're not doing that, then, you know, are we a club really? We yeah, just hire just, it out, you know. Yeah. All the clubs that I've always admired do it themselves. And, you know, then you can control your own artwork. You can control how the artists are treated from the moment they get off the plane. And you can control the music and the set times and everything else. And so I kind of knew I didn't have it in me to to open this club. And from having done one night a month, I just thought I, I can't program Friday, Saturdays well at the start. Like, I, I can't. Too. I was intimidated by it. And I, so I... I just said, like, we'll do the Fridays. The Fridays are the harder one. We've got some decent promoters on the Saturdays. We've had, like, Bugged Out and Living Proof, some sure. good, good people. So that was the first step. We did the Fridays for a year. We did, you know, the, the opening announcement. We had Frankie Knuckles. We had Jack Green live. We had some good stuff. And it was full. All our Fridays sold out for the first for the first year, all of them. Then we, we kind of plucked up the courage to do both. So when I first met you a couple of years ago you explained to me this new concept that you come up with whereby you would ask one dj to play every weekend for 12 weeks yeah, yeah across three months and um my interest was certainly piqued by it i thought maybe <laughs> you were a bit bit nuts or it's, it certainly seemed risky but having now done that for what, a couple couple years our third year third year yeah yep. yeah it seems from the outside like it was a gamble that paid off is is that fair to say yeah yeah very much so i was telling people about that in i think april and we started it the following january and everybody said it wouldn't work we we got a lot of 
lot of negative feedback about it. But it's, what was the main thing people were saying? It depends who you're talking to. Okay. Because if it was, you know, agents and managers would say, you know, it will be dead after a few weeks because people stop coming to see, you know, the, the conventional wisdom is don't play any territory too often while you kind of store up demand, which I didn't really buy. And, and that was the initial, the initial kind of problem with it, that it wasn't going to work. You were going to have to cancel it six weeks in, you have to look, this isn't going to work. It's, it's petering out, which really wasn't the case. And then the other one was when we announced it, we got quite a bit of negativity from people saying, this isn't a residency. And it was a much older generation of dance music fans who were, I don't know, kind of angry about it, saying like, this isn't, this isn't what Larry Levant did, or this, you know, this isn't playing every week for two years, which it, it never claimed to be. It's just, we use the word yeah, resident. Some semantics, you know. <laughs> yeah. But you would assume that what you were going for was kind of uh, combinations, really, because obviously the artist was programming, and you know, exactly. there, was a, there was a collaboration going. And um, yeah. yeah, you were the, uh, running these combinations. Yeah, and it, it, it was a chance. It was a chance for the artist to tell a story about themselves. And a lot of the DJs we've had have been quite interesting and had quite interesting stories. And for me, that's always been the best bit. You know, Scream, we booked some really big DJs for Scream that he wanted to work with in his in his kind of new direction of, of house and techno. But then, you know, we did one where it was a dubstep night and we it was just called Scream 2001 to 2005. And it's the highest, probably the highest demand we've had for any show ever. And it was everybody, but we didn't announce anybody we didn't need to. And telling those stories is always the interesting part for me. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's been a few people you've had on the residencies who definitely have distinct musical phases in, in yeah. their history that are sort of interesting to explore. Yeah, for sure. How has the feedback been from the DJs? What has the experience been like for them of playing the same venue on 12 consecutive weeks? It's interesting. It, it very much depends on the DJ. Some, I think some got tired by the end. You know, Tiger at the moment, he's only four weeks in, so hopefully he's not tired yet, but he's he's flying from Canada every single, every single Saturday. Wow, okay. But then some, you know, the exciting and interesting part for me is when I see a change over those periods. So Jackmaster, when he started, at the start of his residency or a few months before, his history was very, very eclectic. And we had a night with Slimzy and Loafer, for example. And as time went on, every week went on, you could see that he, you know, he had a guest like Taylor of Us and you could see that that was the direction he was going in. That's the direction he really wanted to go in. That's what I enjoy when, when it, it changes something within the artist. I oh, see. So the, there's almost something in like that particular canvas that brings out like latent, yeah, artistic like Maybe. exploration or something. Yeah, I'd say it's more it's the period in which you catch that particular artist. We missed out on a lot of guests that Bicep wanted because it was the summer and it's harder to program in the summer with the festivals. You know, we really wanted DJ Harvey and he couldn't do it. And I think Todd Terge. So we had a much more interesting, but ultimately quite like smaller bunch of guests for them. But they put out just, you know, a couple of months before and everybody was there every week to see Bicep. They were getting bigger and bigger and bigger throughout those three months. And it was, it was a really, it was a really great time. It was, it was really good for, for us and for them, I think. So presumably in the time you've been uh, involved or running XOR, you've uh, achieved lots of uh, your kind of personal goals and, you know, had had a great deal of success. So I'm wondering when this opportunity comes up, there's this, you know, potentially a, a new club down in Brixton, like 
what about this appeals to you? What do you want to potentially achieve with this new space? And, you know, how is that different to XOYO? It was a big challenge in my, in my head to be able to open Fridays and Saturdays and to be able to open XOYO at all. But then you start to go, okay, well, we can do that now. And, and as, as agents accept that they, you know, that artists want to play there, it, it becomes easier. I don't want to take time off. I want to be busy. I enjoy being busy. And so we were looking around for two years, to be honest, for, for another club. I guess I had that thing of anyone who doesn't live south of the river of being a little bit dismissive of it. I, I never, I'd, oh no, I wouldn't go there, it's too far. But then we did a couple of outside events at Brixton Electric. The crowd was great and the area was really, really nice. And I just, I really like how vibrant the place is, the area is. And then somebody said Plan B was potentially for sale. I was so excited, to be honest. I was really like, my chance to not learn on the job as I did with XOY, but my chance to kind of start from start from a position of, of better knowledge. Yeah, I see. I mean, what were your first impressions of the of the space? Well, I'd been in there before, but not not too much. And we, when we knew we could get it, I went down, brought my whole promo team down, and we spent a night just kind of sat in there and and just observing. And there was there was a lot of things that we thought would be relatively quick, and there's a lot of things that we thought we'd change straight away. It took me two seconds to to decide. You know, they, they were running upstairs and downstairs as two separate clubs. And downstairs, I went on this particular night. There was about ten people in there, and an MC being like, "Can you hear me, London?" <laughs> and we were like, "The stream's got to go. Like, just put some seats in here, let people come out the dance." You know, and the next Hawaii and the Nest are both quite claustrophobic venues because we like them quite dark and quite smoky, and the shape of them. And I thought having somewhere seated would actually be a really, a really good thing. So it's just a general overspill area almost. It's yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah. Is it a place to step out for a minute? And, you know, the, the DJ booth was as you walked in. It was on your right. So you, you walked past the DJ kind of in front of his face on the way to the bar and it, or her face. And it was it was a bit, it, it seemed odd that it was on, wasn't on the other side. So we just moved it. And then just a few things like that. If, if, yeah, because it did previously create that just corridor effect didn't it yeah. where the the front of the dance floor which i guess should be the sweet spot uh was the bit that people were were walking through exactly. constantly yeah and there was a few changes like that and you know it was a real treat because i'm really into lighting that i got to kind of design it from from scratch and you know the lighting's are really anyone who's been to phonics it's a really big feature of it it's a really important part of what it is so thinking in the sort of broadest terms, what was the, the sort of concept that you wanted to pursue for Phonox? Well, I spent my time when we announced the residency at XOYO reading a lot of kind of think pieces by angry old clubbers who, who were like, this isn't a real residency. A real residency was. And there was some very perfectly valid arguments about if somebody spends all night in the same space every week, they develop this relationship with an audience and all the things that they were saying was actually right and I, I, I agreed with it and I thought I'd really like the opportunity to try and do that. There is the consideration that a venue the size of XOYO, if we just had one DJ we, we wouldn't fill it in truth and I thought this was the right size that we might we might be able to get away with it. Do you feel like the risk that you took with the three-month residencies at XOYO kind of embolden you in a way exactly. to yeah to take this take this risk again exactly because the the risk wasn't that high because i was getting big guests but actually 
I realized, you know, week nine or 10 of the first one of Eats Everything residency, everyone was like, I'm going to go and see Eats Everything tonight. And the, the guests became secondary. Mm. That always changes with who it is to a degree of who it is, you know, whether they're coming to see specifically the resident or the guests. But it definitely made me feel that way. And how did you decide on Jasper James as being the guy? Saw him DJ. I hate it when people suggest DJs to me. Like if an agent says, do you want to put this act on? I, I don't know, I'm kind of suspicious. I, I feel like I want to have discovered them and someone else will have an agenda. And we booked Moody Man for Jackmaster's residency. And he's phoned me up. He's like, oh, we'll, get, we'll get this guy Jasper James down. And I said, who's that, your mate? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> so God said, all right. So we put him on and he was brilliant, really good. And so, I, I don't know, I took a shine to him. So we, we put him on again at the nest a couple of times. And I just made a point of, of going watching him. And I just think he's he's a really, really good DJ. He's so, so, like, strong-minded in, in what music is good and what music isn't. He's very opinionated. You, you can't influence him on that sort of thing at all. And he just felt, it just felt right. It felt like he was he was the one for, for this. How has he been handling it on a week-to-week basis? You know, is there, uh, is there quite a lot of difference between what he's playing week-to-week? Like, yeah. you know, speaking to him, like, how, how has it been going for him? Yeah, I mean, he, for one thing, there's very few records he plays more than once. He spends all week digging and, it, you know, he's, it's so broad. And for such a long set, every every week, it's very, very, he really he really goes deep. And I think the every week that passes, he said to me in, in January, he said, I'm getting better every week and he, he's realising that he can go really deep and he doesn't have to doesn't have to get the crowd's hands in the air. He doesn't, he doesn't have to, whilst he is there to entertain, he's really, really his own man and the crowd are really responding to it. So it's, I, th- I think it's, it'd be interesting to see where he is in six months. Yeah, I guess if he didn't play with such frequency, he wouldn't be able to gradually test the waters in the exactly. yeah in the way that he has been exactly and you know the, the initial the initial kind of criticism or, or the, the initial worry with having Jasper James or having a DJ play every Saturday firstly okay it's it's going to be empty no one will go and then the second thing is okay it's going to be full but you'll get kind of estate agents from Clapham lowest common denominator because it's just oh it's Saturday night let's go to the club as opposed to music fans and, you know, the things we put in place at the club, like no photography and, and a few things like that, but mostly Jasper's music is the reason that the crowd's really good, you know. So Phonics opened less than a year ago. Um, yeah, in September. And uh, you're already on to the next venue. You guys have just taken over Jazz Cafe, which is opening next yes. month. So, uh yeah, <laughs> another one for the portfolio. Yeah, yeah. So we we got the Jazz Cafe. I have to say that's it, it's Steve Ball. He's always had a soft spot for the venue, being a music fan, and especially of you know. I think it was it's fair to say it was kind of in its heyday, maybe a decade ago or so, and they they were having a lot of a lot of really high profile live artists and jazz influenced live artists, and yeah, when it when it became available. We were all really keen, and I think, I think if we were buying another nightclub, we probably wouldn't do it. We'd probably be like, it's 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 a bit soon. But this is a concert venue, and you know, first and foremost, we'll put on gigs, and it, it won't. I don't think it's going to have any effect on the clubs. 
I'd read a tweet that you'd put out a couple weeks ago, you know, within the last couple of weeks, where you said, we're presently putting the DJ booth in at Jazz Cafe. If you're the type of person who moans on internet forums <laughs> about the layout of clubs, like come, come down and we'll see if we can yeah. accommodate you. <laughs> what is your relationship like with, uh, you know, the whole internet commenting uh, RA threads in particular? Because I, I imagine on the one hand, it would be, you know, very useful to get uh, direct feedback from customers, yeah. but then on the other hand, incredibly frustrating. Yeah, I, th I think that um, I just think everybody has the right to an opinion. And whilst I think sometimes internet forums can be the extreme view of what the main thrust of public opinion might be, it's still good to know. And, you know, sometimes I see things on there that are not true, but I think... I think in general, it's you just have to be positive about it and have to take it as, well, we'll try better. If you didn't like that, we'll try better. Yeah. Do you tend to personally get stuck in and sort of respond to people or do you have a policy? I tend to try not to. Okay. I, 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 I don't very often, to be honest. You know, if someone tweets at me something wrong, I mean, if it's a complaint, if, if something, if you had a bad night, that's really, really important. And if anybody tweets at the clubs and they had a problem, you know, we, we email them and we, we really try and fix it. I think that's that's important in you know in this day and age. I say you can't get annoyed if, <laughs> if if people are moaning. You have to try and fix it and try and do better. So speaking of points of complaint, <laughs> <laughs> um, festivals. You're getting back into the festival game. Yes. Um, what would you say was the? I was going to say gap in the market, but like what what was the you know the necessity to get some form out there? Like what what were you seeing that was missing? Well, I personally missed working on festivals. I think it's quite exciting, and it was obviously London's very very competitive for festivals, maybe even more so than clubs. But I missed it. I missed the com the competition. I missed I missed the interesting curation of it. And um, we'd been trying for a couple of years to do something. And then we got approached in the summer, last summer, by the guys who do Dimensions and Outlook, by Noah and Joe, and, and they said, you know, we've got this site, it's on, it's in Brixton, and um, do you fancy doing a festival with us? And we said, yeah, we, we did. So you guys have gone for a single day concept, yep. and then you're pairing it with nighttime... Exactly. ...club-related stuff. Yeah. What happened was... the. About three or four years ago, you know that, that festival Wildlife with Disclosure and Rudimental? I think very early on when that was mooted, somebody who was involved said to me, oh, you know, this might be in London, maybe you can maybe you can get involved in some way, but you need to come up with some good idea because otherwise it'll be like a big, you know, a national promoter. And I wrote this, I just spent an evening, I wrote this great big long essay about people love being outside and they love going to parks, but music fans hate the sound restrictions and and you know the short sets and the things that ha that come within in a city festival, and I said maybe you could com maybe you could combine the two, and choose your ticket in advance and say, I'll, you know I'll buy this ticket which is, Bussy Building and the park. I wrote this for East London. I wrote this was like XOYO and Village Underground and, but I, I don't know if anyone ever saw that or I don't. I, we didn't get involved, no one asked us to get involved. So I don't know if anyone ever saw that and rejected the idea, but I just kind of had it in my mind. And then when we got approached, I kind of just forwarded that idea to the guys and they loved it. And, you know, those guys, they know about sound systems. They really, they really care. And so it made, it made a lot of sense to us. 
So in terms of the day portion, you're going to have something resembling the classic like green space and tents sort of setup. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah, very much. So. I mean, it's a it's a big. The festival's not very big. The festival's only ten thousand people this year, but it's it's a quite a big site for that size. So I think it'd be quite nice that we can space it out. And then there's there's um, four arenas. Have you been assured that the uh, noise factor is uh, <laughs> is not going to be a thing? Because obviously it's such a bone of contention in London, like in the city festivals. I, I definitely, I have been assured, but I, I definitely take every assurance with a pinch of salt sure. from experience. And, you know, nobody's ever going to go to a festival in the centre of London and hear a sound system that sounds like Bergheim. It's just not going to happen. But at the same time, the big thing I've learned from this, whilst I'm, production's not really my thing I'm, I'm i'm booking the djs the emails i see where it's like do you want this sound system or this sound system do you want to double skin the, the tents to insulate it that sort of thing is a lot pretty much down to what you're willing to invest we're just from day one we sell out to break even we're, we won't make a penny from it that's not the point we, we want to grow something and outlook and dimensions reputation in croatia is for sound systems really good sound system we, we want to do the best we possibly can so we've been talking about these uh, numerous projects that you you currently have on the go but i'm wondering is there a like personal risk to you or you know maybe thinking more widely about spreading yourself too thin no i i'm sure there will be at some point but i'm, I'm nowhere near that i found myself say i'm booking seven or eight months ahead for the djs for the clubs i found myself last january staring at spreadsheet and and being like you know I've, i want to book november i've booked october sort of thing and maybe accepting some bookings that i shouldn't have and and maybe wanting to get something done rather than being like if i wait three weeks i'll get an answer on somebody i really want and i think that i think i took a little back step by not being busy enough and by wanting to complete work which isn't how it should be it should be let's like do it right and since we've opened Phonox and started working on Sunfall and Jazz Cafe, I find myself now, right, I really want this DJ to play this date seven months ahead. And the agent's like, we're not going to decide yet. And rather than getting my second choice, I'll just go and work on something else. The more hyperactive I am, the happier I am, to be honest. I work in the evenings, I like, I like watching TV and sending offers. We're nowhere near. I, I certainly could take on more work, to be honest. I mean, what would you say at this point in time is the biggest challenge you face on a day-to-day -day basis in your professional life? I guess it's with each venue, it's it's finding the balance of I'm not the I'm not the guy who who puts in all the money for these nightclubs. There's investors, and my responsibility to them is to give them a return. But at the same time, I wouldn't do it if it was something I wouldn't be proud of. You're faced with a conflicting thing of on the one hand, you have to sell the tickets. You want it to be really busy. On the other hand, you don't want it to be sellout. You don't want it to be too mainstream. And you, and I think that's why there's a real premium on, on certain DJs who can do both. Mm. You know, try booking Fortet. <laughs> it's really hard. And I, th I think getting that balance is the hard pit when you're booking what will be 12 weekend nights a week soon. You know, having the patience to, to wait rather than accepting reining myself in is, I guess, the <laughs> the answer to that question. Yeah, because I'd, I'd seen you 
mentioned in the past the fact that you've done some like student orientated nights outside of London and um, you know you'd had some time to think about it and reach a conclusion that it was something you did more for the money and yeah. in your mind you'd maybe cross something of a red line or something I found yeah. that really interesting yeah 100% we we got approached we, we have a student promoter on a on a Tuesday so I was a really good promoter or a Monday and they asked us they said oh we can book all these fill all these venues in regionally we just need you to book the talent and we'll be partners on it and I think we thought you know this will be good money and and I don't think we've ever done anything like that before to be totally honest it would be much easier to make more money than we do with XOYO by it being less good is the truth you know it's in a really busy area we could put on 200 pound DJs playing chart music on a Saturday and you know it'd probably be full and we wouldn't have to have a really good sound system. And I think th those nights failed. Those nights were really rubbish, the, the student nights that we did. And I completely I completely walked away being like, I'm glad they failed. And we were like, let's not just do something for money. It sounds a bit cosmic and I'm really not, <laughs> I'm not a hippie at all. I'm not that guy, but I think do things for the right reasons. I want to finish up by just talking a bit more generally about London, you know, because the state of nightlife here is kind of a an ongoing you know, topic of, of discussion. Um, we'd had Alan Miller from the NTIA come through as part of a roundtable uh, discussion within the last couple of months. He'd said that a, a nighttime champion for London was the most vital step that needs to be taken to kind of ensure a healthy future for the industry. Yeah. Is that something you would personally subscribe to? Yeah. Definitely. I think that with the restrictions on licensing, that there's all I really think that should happen is that there should be two sides to the argument. I think if somebody who lives 200 metres away says it's too, it's too loud, the reaction is, OK, turn it down. And sometimes the arguments are much more nuanced than that. I don't think we need to have a free reign. We, we have enormous and expensive responsibilities with all our venues, which we fulfil. We have stewards shushing people 100 metres away from XOYO on a Saturday night. And we pay people to do that. There's no, there's no reason why those people should shush. They don't have to listen to our guys. But, you know, that's fine. We do that. We, we, we spend that money because it's, it's within our responsibility. I really don't have any problem with that. I just have a problem with complete one-sidedness and with quite draconian decision-making. If something goes wrong, it's like, okay, now you shut two hours earlier. I think... A little bit of balance is, is all any of us are really asking for. Do you feel like it's a realistic aim for the kind of club community to come together in London in what is such a competitive marketplace? Well, I think it's happening with the NTIA. I think that the goodwill is there. Everybody understands that it's mutually beneficial. And I think more than anything, we've all had our own issues with it. We've all had our own problems with it. And... Therefore, we all know that it has to be done. It needs to be done. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's fair to say it's in the collective interest. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Something to be done. Another point that Alan and Dan raised was that they felt as though nightlife in London, maybe further afield in the UK, is kind of uh, culturally undervalued, yeah. if you like. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask you if, if that's something you'd agree with, but also what can be done about this I completely agree with it and like annoying as it is the reality is that the NTIA will tell you that it's lobbying in the way that 
you know, I'm, I'm really not involved in that stuff because I'm, I'm kind of doing day-to-day running the clubs. But, you know, the lobbying and the, the things that you hear about with paying somebody to lobby MPs and to, you know, do studies and all that stuff, which is quite laborious and expensive and time-consuming, it's the only way because you have to shift public opinion. Okay, so with all of uh, the many projects you have on your plate, I'm assuming you're not adding anything else in the foreseeable future? or I don't know about necessarily adding anything. I, f- I feel like we've got quite a big year ahead for XOIO. Um, after Tiga's residency, we're going to move the quarterly residencies to Fridays. And then from August onwards, we're going to do Saturdays in-house. And it's very much, it's very much going to be our own programming and it's very much going to be the sound that we want XOI to have and it to, to be our identity. And that's something we've been working on for a long time. I'm really kind of excited and looking forward to to doing that and it being the music that, that we want to showcase. Are you able to give any details about what that sound might be like? I won't I won't try to define it too much, but we, August we start off with DJ Harvey playing. He's going to play every Saturday start to finish with no guests. And then after that, it'll be it'll be different guests each week, programmed. But you know, if there was an embodiment of the sound that that we like, it's it's probably Harvey. <laughs> <laughs>